And so we're going to work on that a little bit as well. And, and not just work on it, we're going to try and teach you how you can work on it on your own. Um, after he says, for I came out from Jerusalem, he says, and my eyes have beheld the things of the Jews. And I know that the Jews will understand the things of the prophets. So we've had the things or the manner of prophesying on the Jews, but we also just have the things of the Jews where we might say customs and culture. Understanding a few things about their customs and culture will be helpful. So we'll do that together during the next several days. And then remember that he says uh, at the end of that verse, and I, I know that the Jews will understand the things of the prophets. And I think that's another way of saying what we've already looked at. The manner of prophesying among the Jews with this book is as we continue on, he says, But behold, I myself have dwelt at Jerusalem, wherefore I know concerning the regions round about. So again, he's telling us geography and topography. And I have made mention unto my children concerning the judgments of God, which have come to pass among the Jews unto my children, according to all that which Isaiah had spoken, and I do not write them. Right, so there's something about the judgments of God that has happened among the Jews. This really is, is history and covenant. It's understanding what God has done with the Israelites and why he has done it and, that, and, and the judgments that are both good and bad that come because of the way they keep or don't keep the covenant. And so we're going to talk about that as well. So let's take all those different things that I put up there. We're just going to make a little bullet point list. I think that's a little easier than, than uh, how we put all these other things in the scripture. So here's our, our bullet point list. Nephi says we need to learn something about the manner of prophesying, about geography and topography, about customs and culture, and about history and covenant. Right? So that's what we're going to spend our next several days on. We're going to talk quite a bit about the manner of prophesying today. We'll also do that on Wednesday and on Thursday. Uh, today we'll talk about geography and topography. Uh, today we'll talk about customs and culture and also tomorrow and on Thursday and Friday we're going to talk about history and covenant. Alright, so we're going to try and cover all of these keys for understanding Isaiah. And it's not going to be that complicated. I, 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 it's, it really ends up being fairly easy once we start to get into it. And so this is again designed to be a guide where by the end you're able to do this stuff on your own. That's, that's the goal here and I think we can do it. I've seen it happen with students by now, year after year after year, and, and uh, I believe that uh, you're more than capable, you've had a little bit more experience than most of my students, so you'll, you'll do just fine. Um, so we'll start out with some general strategies. All right, just, that's today, just kind of some general strategies. And we're going to start out by looking at uh, just a little bit of the background. We'll do more history in, in coming days, but a little bit of background that can help us just with starting to understand Isaiah. And I have to tell you, I'm just particularly passionate about understanding just enough of the background that the scriptures become real to us. That's what we really want, is to have the scriptures jump out and, and come alive for us. Uh, this, I'm, I'm passionate enough about this that I, I try and teach this way, I write this way, I have a podcast about this and so on. Uh, and in fact, uh, just this morning, this, I'm now going off script, someone's going to do that, I don't know, but um, uh, just this morning, uh, I did an interview with uh, Dallin Bates, who uh, used to sing on Broadway and so on, about songs and music. Um, and I was going to post this like next week or something like that, and it was, he just made it come so alive to me. I've loved the songs for a long time and thought the songs. He made it come so alive to me that I can't say, I'm just posting this right now. Right? Uh, there's something about that enthusiasm. When the scriptures become alive, you feel enthused about them. You see how they apply to you. If you look at them and you see uh, those people are real, and I'm real, and so it's easier for you to apply it to your life because you understand how real it is. And so that's part of what we want to do is, is understand how real these scriptures are and how real they are for Isaiah. And so we'll do a little bit of background and a little bit of history that hopefully will help us understand this a little bit. All right? And just hopefully make Isaiah and his people come alive for us. So we're just going to start out with some general facts about Isaiah, all right? We'll just start with his name. Uh, and it literally means Jehovah saves. It's what we call Theophoric. It has the name of, of Jehovah in there, that Yahoo at the end, yes, Yahoo. Uh, Yahoo is shortened form of Jehovah, all right? So uh, this is, it means Jehovah saves. So we would call this a prophetic name. Uh, Isaiah is going to teach us in his writings, but even by his very name, that Jehovah saves us. It's actually the main theme of 
of Isaiah. And it's carried in Isaiah's name. That's, that's so exciting to me. Uh, let's also understand this. He lives in Judah, but he prophesies to both Judah and the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and to all nations. And he makes it clear that Jehovah is the God of all the earth. Now, this is different than most people in this day would have thought, because they thought, well, each region has its own God, and they believe that if you're polytheistic, you don't think, well, my God's the real God, and your God's not the real God. You think, well, yeah, they're all real gods, but my God takes care of me in my area, and he's more powerful than your God when he's in my area. And then sometimes you think, well, my God's more powerful than you're going to take everyone over in that kind of thing. But, uh, but Isaiah is telling them something different. It's not that Jehovah is the God of the Israelites, and, uh, and Marduk is the God of the Assyrians. He's saying Jehovah is the God of everyone. And that's, that's different for this day and age. In fact, this is one of the things that a lot of Israelites are struggling with in this day. They worship Jehovah, but they haven't stopped believing in other gods. And they will worship other gods at the same time that they worship Jehovah. And, and one of his major messages as he preaches to Judah and Israel primarily, but also to all nations, is that Jehovah is the God for all the world. That's an important message. Just to kind of place him historically, he's born. We don't really know when he's born. He estimates somewhere around 760 BC. We don't really know. He sees his call somewhere around 740 BC. Now, I, to me, I find that really interesting. Uh, he is a pretty young prophet when he starts. He's a pretty young person. Isaiah's ministry is very long, uh, and he starts very young. Right? Traditionally, he dies around 690 BC. We don't really know. We, we know closer that the, when he receives his call, we know that day closer because we know he, he starts to minister during the last year that King Uzziah died. And we can give that a pretty good date. All right? Traditionally, he's sawn in half by Manasseh. Manasseh is Hezekiah's son, and uh, Hezekiah, after Hezekiah dies, Manasseh is wicked for most of his reign. And uh, I'm sure that Isaiah had a thing or two to say about that. And so tradition holds that uh, Manasseh wanted to kill him, and Isaiah was running away, and by this time he's old, and he hides in a tree, and so Manasseh just saw, has them saw the tree in half with Isaiah in it. Um, we don't know if that's true or not, but that's the tradition. What we do know is that he serves under a number of kings, under King Uzziah, uh, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and Manasseh. That's a lot of kings. Uh, and just to kind of, again, make this come to life for us, when he begins his ministry, very soon after he begins his ministry, King Uzziah dies. King Uzziah was one of the longest reigning kings in the history of the kingdom of Judah. And one of the most prosperous reigns. Prosperous and peaceful for the most part. It's, it's a kind of a golden era for ancient Judah. And when he dies, I would guess there's a feeling that most, most people would not have known any other king. Uh, there's got to be a feeling of uh, nervousness and transition. And they suddenly have this young prophet who is called at that time and is going to help guide them through this difficult transition that they're going through. It's uh, also important to know, and we'll come back to this on another day when we do history, but it's, it's worth knowing that for most of Isaiah's ministry, he is warning the northern kingdom, or the kingdom of Israel, that if they don't prevent, they're going to be destroyed. And he's warning the southern kingdom about the same thing. The northern kingdom is scattered, destroyed and scattered, because it's scattering into ten tribes during his ministry. And the southern kingdom is nearly destroyed, and, and many, much, much of uh, uh, many of the people in Judah do die during his ministry as the Assyrians come in. So those are some of the things that Isaiah is dealing with. And I hope we can just think of him as a person. And, and you know, we read accounts that he's having children during this, and he's bringing his children with him as he delivers prophecies. And I hope we can kind of start to see Isaiah as a family man who's going through uh, all these things in a really difficult time period and can become a little more real to us. And then it's a little easier to listen to someone who's a little more real to us. Uh, just to add to that, and this is only tradition, we don't know if it's true, but tradition holds that he's Hezekiah's father-in-law and he's Uzziah's cousin. Uh, so that's interesting, right? He, he certainly uh, seems to fit in with the elite class in Jerusalem. And uh, it's possible he is the, the cousin of the king and uh, then enough loyalty that Ahaz will have his son marry Isaiah's daughter. So that when you have Hezekiah listening to Isaiah, 
this might be his father-in-law. We don't know. Uh, it's not a tradition that is super old, but, so it may not be accurate, but it's possible uh, that he's listening to his father-in-law. That's, that's kind of fun to think about. What we do know for sure is that he's highly educated. He really is an aristocrat. Uh, he is one of the most gifted writers. In fact, I would vote for him as the most gifted writer in the history of the world. If he's not the most, he's in the top ten. He is an incredibly gifted writer. He, his vocabulary is crazy. Isaiah uses more words that, uh, in the Hebrew Bible. We get some words uh, that are used only once in the entire Hebrew Bible. And it's a little bit hard to figure out what they mean when they're only used once. Isaiah does that more than anybody else. His vocabulary is just off the charts. I think sometimes he's literally making up these words in a very clever way. Uh, but we'll look at, at a couple of these. So for, uh, I'll just give you an example right now. Um, there's a time where he's talking about the destruction of Moab, and he uh, he mentions the city uh, Dumim. And no one we can't find that city anywhere else. Doesn't seem to exist. Um, but it, it's what might be happening here is that there's a there is a city called Duma, and then there's a Hebrew word Dam, which means blood. And, and it seems that and Dumim is the bloodiness and so on. So it seems like he might just be doing a play on words where he's taken the name of a real city and mixed it kind of it, it mixed it in with the word for blood. And then he is talking about how that city was destroyed. And he might just be calling it the bloody city um, as he does this play on words. He does that kind of thing all the time. He's highly educated. That's unlike Amos, who talks about he was out working in the field when God called him to uh, be a prophet, right? And most of the prophets are actually. Uh, very agricultural. I would guess that a number of them were not literal. Uh, that they had someone else write their prophecies down. But Isaiah is literal. He's incredibly literate and uh, he uh, just very, very uh, educated. So hopefully that uh, helps us understand Isaiah a little bit more. Alright, so I want to show you this as well. This is a fine chart uh, that I've stolen out of a fine textbook uh, where you see that the kings of Judah the kings of Israel, the kings of Assyria, and prophets. And you get the idea how long Hezekiah, I mean not Hezekiah, how long Isaiah is a prophet for graphically or visually as you look at this. He is the prophet through several kings of Assyria, all of the last kings of Israel, and several kings of, um, and I don't know why they did this wrong, because this ministry actually lasts into Manasseh, so it should come up in the year, the several kings of Judah. Uh, he just is a prophet with an incredibly long ministry. So that's that's helpful to think of, I think, and, and just picture Isaiah as a real person and what's going on in this game. So with that down, let's look a little bit more. We, we've talked about background. Let's talk about some general strategies in general. Uh, that's but anyway, um, and I've already said this, speaking of being redundant, but I think part of what we have to do is just be willing to pay a price. Isaiah wrote very carefully. He crafted his words very, very carefully. He wrote very densely, and so we're going to have to slow down a little bit. So I've, I've seen this sign before, slow down students ahead, but we're just changing it to slow down. <laughs> um, and I, I once heard uh, a friend of mine who quoted a, a Catholic um, philosopher, and I have searched and searched and searched for this and haven't been able to find it, so I can't tell you the name of the person, and I can only paraphrase, but he said something that, that really meant something to me. This guy was a philosopher and uh, a naturalist, he's called. He loved to be out in nature. And he said that nature reserves its most beautiful scenes for those who are willing to pay the highest price. Mm -hmm. right, so just as an example, I have a quick picture. I happen to love mountain lakes. So this is a picture of a lake that, that we had to go on a 13-mile hike with 6,000-foot elevation gain to find this lake or, or this lake. Right? That we had to pay a price to get there, but wow, it was beautiful. And, and I think that, that that same philosopher compared that then to what God does. God also reserves the greatest things for those who are willing to pay the price. If we want to understand Isaiah, we need to pay that price. We need to slow down. We've been reading up until just the last little while. We've been reading narrative in Come Follow Me. And we've been racing for that narrative. In fact, some weeks we covered like 300 years in one week. Right? And you can read that narrative really quickly. And you just keep zipping along. Isaiah, you cannot read at that speed. And so you're going to have to slow down. Now, we're spending five weeks, I think maybe six, but I think it's five weeks on Isaiah. 
Uh, that, that gives us an idea of how important the, the church is thinking it is that we uh, study and come to learn the law of the words of Isaiah. Um, but no one gave you extra hours in the week during the period of the So we're going to have to make a couple of choices here because there's a lot of chapters we cover each week. Uh, so if there's a way to carve out more time during that five weeks to say, you know, I'm going to do a little less of this and a little bit more time studying the scriptures and I'm going to spend more time in Isaiah, hallelujah. If you can do that, wonderful. I'm going to make a sincere effort to do that. Uh, I can't promise because it also happens to be right when school starts, and that seems to be a busy time period for us here at, at the university, but that, I, that's going to be my goal. But I would also suggest this, and this is my opinion. There may be other people that have a different opinion, and maybe the church curriculum committee has a different opinion, but they haven't talked to me about it, so I'm feel free to give my opinion. Um, <laughs> I would say it, it, with however much time you're able to carve out of your schedule to study Isaiah, it is also better to say, as an example, read five chapters well, then 10 chapters poorly. Uh, and so I would just say, start in with your reading and, and do what you need to understand those chapters well. And maybe you look at it and say, okay, I, I might not finish, so these chapters seem to be most important and study those really well. Whatever works for you, but be willing to put some, some time in this and to pay the price, all right? I've been taking too much time. I need to keep going so that we can cover all I want to cover. One of the ways you're going to pay the price is to, to try and investigate symbolism. Isaiah uses symbolism. All prophets use symbolism. He uses it more and more masterfully than just about anybody. Now, Isaiah the prophets. There's actually this great quote that uh, Orson F. Whitney once said, God teaches using symbols. It's his favorite method of teaching. <coughs> so we're going to give God prime place there. He uses it more than anyone, and I do believe that. Just look at it. Just go to the temple. And you see that God teaches these symbols, right? Uh, he teaches by symbols everywhere. Uh, and we have to ask ourselves, why symbols? Why would Isaiah or God use symbols? And we could have a 45-minute discussion on that. I'll give you just a couple of ideas of why, and I'm sure you have more ideas than I have. Uh, some of the reasons are they stick with you better. A symbol really sticks with you. You remember it. You can relate to it better. And it can reveal layer after layer of meaning. So you might encounter a symbol at one point in your life and you draw one meaning out of it. And at another point, when the different things are happening for you and you're at a different stage of your progression, you draw another layer of meaning out of it. And at another time, you draw another layer of meaning out of it. Right, so this, these are some of the reasons that symbols are important. Uh, and so we want to stop and make sure we get something out of our symbols. The problem is with Isaiah that often we don't intuitively understand the symbols because we're removed in time and culture from Isaiah. I, I, I use this example with my students, and, and with them, I really heartbroken to say that I, I put this picture up and they don't know who it is. Um, but uh, I would say the closest thing to Isaiah we've had in my generation is Elder Maxwell, uh, who was an incredibly masterful writer. So I'm just going to put up a quote. You probably remember this, uh, uh, just a great line from this that uses symbols. He once said, a basic cause of murmuring is that too many of us seem to expect that life will flow ever smoothly, featuring an unbroken chain of green lights with empty parking places just in front of our destiny. <laughs> now, I realize, so I know you intuitively got that. Right? You understood what he was saying. But I, I don't know. I'm not a prophet, and, and I'm not that good at predicting the future. But I'm going to predict that 200 years from now, some people can read that and say, what? Green lights? Why were there green lights in there? What's, what, what do they mean by green lights? They may not even know what parking places are. Those are symbols that are so much a part of our daily life that we just get them without having to think about it. And I would say even 100 years ago, maybe even 50 years ago, that was more true of Isaiah than it is today. Because Isaiah draws a tremendous amount on agricultural symbols. And our culture was much more agriculturally oriented just a few years ago than it is today where most of my students have a whole week. Um, and, uh, and, and so we're going to have to spend some time to try and understand Isaiah's symbols. We're going to unpack Isaiah's symbols. And after I put this slide together, I realized the irony of it that I'm putting a suitcase up as a symbol of unpacking a symbol, right? Um, but, uh, but that's why we use symbols. They, 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 they help us understand things so quickly, right? Uh, so I'm going to give you what I think are three stages for understanding a symbol. 
uh, for unpacking a symbol and wanting to study Isaiah. And what I find is that most people skip this first step, and that really hampers their ability to do the next few steps. So the first step is to learn the literal symbol. You have to look at the symbol and find out, what, just study it. What does it literally mean? And sometimes with the guy, just know that. Spend a little time. Make sure you think through what is that symbol literally. So let's do this together as an example, all right? So this is from Isaiah chapter 42. And he says, a bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. All right, so let's look at that, uh, that, that reeds and flax and see if we can figure out what they are. So what is meant by a reed? These are reeds in Egypt along the Nile. And you can say, okay, that's, that's nice. Those are reeds. But what, why would you care about whether your reed is bruised or not? So you could do a little research. All you have to do is get online and do a little research. There's weird stuff out there. But if you find four or five places that are saying basically the same thing, that's probably a pretty good indicator. So you can just try and search what do they use a reed for most often in ancient Israel. And what you'll find is that the, the most common thing that, that at least we know of that they use it for is for writing. Right, so you can see here that, there, that this is a reed, uh, and there, you have to have a kosher form of reed to write, and with your kosher ink. But anyway, uh, as you write with a reed, but when you've used it too much, it starts to get soft, and it doesn't work very well, right? So that's, that's the reed. We're going to come back to that. What is meant by flax? Right, so this is the flax plant, and flax was a really important plant in the ancient world. They, they can eat flax seeds like we do, but the most common thing you did is you made linen out of it. So the most common kind of clothing in the ancient world, and this is from my excavation, um, uh, this is a linen uh, tunic, right? Made from flax. Uh, that's the most common way it's used, but it talked about smoking flax. So most likely it's not talking about a tunic. So you have to ask yourself, okay, well, what, what's smoking flax? Well, flax, the linen, was woven together to make the wick for your lamp. So that's probably what he's referring to with smoking flax, right? This is uh, this idea. Um, and let's let's talk about these two symbols. Uh, with the reed, so we'll come back to the second image in a second. With the reed, when it, it becomes bruised and it's not working, you throw it away and you get another one. But with, uh, but, but that's not what this scripture says will happen. With a lamp, usually the flax wick burns without very much, it's got good olive oil in it, it burns with hardly any smoke at all. But when the wick is just about used up, it starts to smoke a lot. So that's the literal symbol. We come to understand a little bit the literal symbol of flax and reed, okay? So now we go to step two, ask about the symbolic meanings. All right, what, what are the symbolic meanings? So again, uh, if you're thinking about the, the reed and when it's not working, you throw it away, it seems like maybe you're saying, oh, sometimes people are thrown away. When they're not working well, we throw them away. Or if we throw away a, uh, a bruised, uh, or a smoking flax, Maybe one of the possible symbols is that we do that with people. There might be other symbols. You can explore all sorts of symbols. And you have to kind of look at the context. How might it have been taken in their day, especially? So let's look at, at the verse, uh, this verse again. And the part that we didn't read was in verse 1, where it says, My servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, and whom my soul delight, I put my spirit upon him, and shall bring forth judgment in the Gentiles. Shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not yeah. and a smoking flax shall he not quench. Now, when we hear servant, we automatically think Christ. And Christ is the primary fulfillment of the servant when Isaiah talks about the servant. Interestingly, though, when Isaiah himself identifies with the servant as he says Israel, and I think both are correct, so this gets into this, and we'll spend more time on this another thing, this, this idea that Isaiah intends more than one being most of the time. Um, so we have to stop and think about, okay, so do, does Israel, ancient Israel, sometimes when someone or something becomes uh, less useful, just discard it? And the answer would seem to be, yeah, they do that, but not when they're really being God's servant. Right? He won't break it, and he won't quench it. And what about Christ as a fulfillment of that servant? Christ doesn't discard us when we're not working. 
That's that's good <coughs> stuff, right? Now the third step would be to ask how we how might we apply these to us? Are there ways that we sometimes just discard those around us who are less useful? In our wards, do we sometimes say, well, this person isn't very reliable, we're not going to, to turn to them or use them or ask them to help? Uh, when I thought about this, I thought about ministry. Well, this person doesn't really uh, make themselves very available for me to go minister to them, so I'm just not going to. I'm just going to quench that flax. I'm going to break them and throw away that me. Right? There are a number of ways that these can apply to our life, but we can only do that well when we've done these first two things first. Understood the literal symbol, then asked how it might apply in, in all of those older contexts, then we can take it and apply it in our own life better. Uh, and if we'll take the time to do that, it doesn't take that much time. Um, it takes a little bit of thought, and hopefully we, we write these things down, and personal revelation will come to us about ways this will apply in our own life. There are some other symbols that, uh, I mean, Isaiah is full of symbols, and there are all sorts of symbols we can use. Let's just uh, give one more example. And this, these verses are too long. We won't read the whole thing, but we'll read a little bit. That the plowman plow all day to sow, that the open and break the claws of, the, of his ground, when he hath made plain the face thereof, that he not cast abroad the fitches, and scatter the cumin, and cast the principal wheat, and the appointed barley, and the rye in their place. For his God doth instruct him discretion, doth teach him. Uh, for the fitches are not threshed with a threshing instrument, neither is a cartwheel turned upon the cumin. But the fitches are beaten out with the sack, the cumin with the rod, and bread corn is bruised. Alright, so I, I would read the rest of what I said I would. So, uh, <laughs> we'll keep going. so now you say, okay, that's a lot of nice plant and agricultural uh, stuff you threw in there, Isaiah. Thanks a lot. I don't know what the world you're talking about. Right? And our temptation would typically be to move on. Okay, the plowman's plowing and he's got to move nice next. Right? So move on to the next thing. But stop and take a minute and just get online and search what, what are fishes. And you can find the black cumin. So it's just kind of two different kinds of cumin, all right? And then you can read this part and say, well, the, the fitches and cumum are cast abroad and scattered. And as you're doing your research about what are fitches and what are cumum, you can learn about how to plant them. And it turns out that, that they're cast about when you plant them. You, you take all these seeds, so you get the ground good and soft, you plow it, but not as it grows, and then you just cast it. And let the seeds land where they, they do. Uh, that's the best way to do it with, with cumum and with black cumum, which is Pitches, right? Uh, but look at this, casting the principal wheat and the appointed barley and the rye in their place. So here's wheat, barley, and rye. That's not that different from wheat, barley, and rye today. We just have some that produce a little bit more. But note this part where it says, in their place. And, and it turns out when you plant these kinds of crops, you get a, a row and you evenly space them apart. So that's, that's interesting. Now we're learning about that symbol, right? And then we can look at the, the threshing part. Would look like fitches uh, and cumum uh, are not threshed in the same way that red corn is. Red corn is, is root, right? So what what might this mean? And you can learn about threshing. Well, you you delicately thresh cumum. Uh, you can't do it the way you do wheat. With wheat, you get this uh, this sled and you put rocks in these little holes and you put it on a stone floor and you put some heavy on it and you drag it across the wheat and just beat it to death, basically, and that's how you get, that's how you thresh it, that's how you get the kernels out. But if you did that with the, the fitches and the cumin, you would ruin it. All right, so that seems to be telling us in both cases that God treats these, well, a plowman treats plants differently. And so probably God is saying he does that with that us differently. So let's look at some more of, of that chapter, all right? Just before this in the chapter, uh, we learn that God says, Whom shall he teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. So when we put that together with the, the next set of verses, which are about Kumam and so on, it gives us the idea that Maybe God is saying, I don't teach you all the same way. Just like the farmer plants different plants and harvests them differently, I will teach you differently than I teach someone else. I'm going to give it to you at your speed and in your way. 
and I'll give it to someone else in their way. And God works with us individually. So that's a pretty powerful symbol. I really like that. And that all, all of this stuff you can learn with just a little bit of research and just a little bit of work. Now, I'll also say that that, that would still take you a long time. So finding some commentaries where someone has done some of the hard work for you is, is a useful thing. I would still encourage you to do some of that on your own, but uh, but I would also take advantage of some people who've already done a lot of that work for you. I can attest that it literally takes years to go for the whole device exam. So, um, so you can you can get some help. But let's look a little bit more at that uh, chapter 28 and see if we can figure out a, a couple more things from this that I think will cast even more light on the like you have with Kumam and Fitches and Line Upon Line and so on. So we've got these, these verses that we just read uh, where you get precept upon precept and line upon line, but we want to look at the context. And sometimes what we do is we take these verses and we see these little paragraph markers right here, or maybe we just did two up, but there seems to be a break. And we, we separate it from the verses that are before and after. We most especially do that with chapter divisions. And so often, there's not a break between the end of one chapter and the beginning of the other. But one of the most egregious places for this is the uh, verse 1 of chapter 4 should probably just be the last verse of chapter 3. Uh, and we get confused about what it means in chapter, verse 1 before chapter 1, because we read it separately from chapter 3, but it's really meant to just go right with it. Um, so we often forget to look at the context. So let's look at what some of the verses before this say, all right? Because we get precept upon precept, or at least we, we think we do, but let's look at it a little bit more, okay? So here are the verses before it. Verse 7 and 8. But they also have heard through wine and through strong drink are out of the way. Uh, the priest and the prophet have heard through strong drink. They are swallowed up with wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all the tables are full of vomit and filthiness because they're so drunk, right? So that there is no place in them. Then he asks this question, whom shall I teach knowledge? So think of this, this imagery he uses about getting drunk and vomiting because you're drunk, all right? Then we get the precept upon precept. Now let's skip down to verse 11, all right, which comes right after. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. So we've got this part here where he talks about precept upon precept, line upon line, but it's bracketed by drunk people who aren't able to talk very well. Right? And we have to ask ourselves, what in the world is going on there? The, 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 the context around it doesn't seem to make sense with those verses. Well, there are, I think, some interesting things going on here. Uh, and, and this is stuff that you probably wouldn't need to look at a commentary a bit online. You can find great online commentaries, and there are all sorts of uh, things that you can find. This one helps a little bit if you can uh, read the Hebrew, all right? Uh, because in Hebrew, the part we translate as uh, line upon, well, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, doesn't quite say that. It's, it's words, and these seem to be, again, words that Isaiah makes up. Um, the, the reason to translate this precept and line is because it's part of the root for those words. So it's kind of like saying instead of precept upon precept, it's like saying pre, or well, probably sept upon sept, sept upon sept, and ein upon ein, or something like that. Uh, but but let me just kind of tell you what it says in Hebrew when you get the word it He says, kav v'kav, kav v'kav, tzav v'tzav, tzav v'tzav. And it's not a full word. I think it does come from the, the, the roots for measuring, that's the line part, is measuring out, and for commandment, that's the precept part. Um, but it's not quite those words, and it sounds like Babel, right? So what, what, what's the context? And we'll look at what the verses after this say as well. Verse 12, uh, he said, to whom he said, this is the rest wherewith many gods would weary to rest, and this is the refreshing that you would not hear. And then we get to the end of the end where he says that they, they, they teach them precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. And this might remind you of Isaiah's call where he was told to preach, but they're not going to listen, and to preach in a way that they don't listen and they don't understand. And you start to get the idea that what's happening is that Isaiah is teaching in a way that those who are not drunk, and I would then guess that this means drunk literally, but also spiritually drunk on the ideas of the world, drunk on their own ideas. They will understand. They'll, God will teach them in a way that they understand and they get it line upon line, precept upon precept. 
But to the world, those who are drunk on the ideas of the world, it sounds like babbling, like a stammering uh, lips and tongue. And they fall away backwards because they won't hear. Right? So you have to look at all of these verses, and in this particular case, you're going to want to look at, at the Hebrew as well. But for most of that, just by looking at the context and the symbolism of the fishes and the kuma, you get the idea that God teaches us all at our own speed, but if we're not willing to listen, we're not going to understand any of it. If we're listening to the world instead of God, this would go back to some President Nelson talk about letting God know more than anything else about uh, listening to Christ more instead of taking all of our information from social media and other sources, right? Uh, this seems to be a way of saying if that's what you're paying attention to the world, what God says is going to be bad. But if you're willing to listen to God, He's going to teach you exactly what you need in exactly the way you need it. That's, that's, that's wonderful stuff. One of the other things that I think that Isaiah is masterful at is using imagery. Uh, so he uses symbols, but he does it to create a picture in your mind. He uses his words to paint a picture. All right. So let's let's look at an example of that. But it's also an example of using um, symbols, and, and again, we'll give you an idea of how you can kind of unpack these symbols uh, on your own. So we're not going to read this whole long thing where we've got the word of, of uh, Moab. This is when he's prophesying about the destruction that will come through Moab, and it's going to come in, in one night. Right? All sorts of destruction happens in one night. We're going to focus on just this part. Uh, Heshbon shall cry, and Eliale, their voice shall be heard even unto Yahaz. Now, my guess would be that your tendency is to read all these names and get to that line and just keep moving on. Like, okay, I don't know where you're talking about. Let's, let's move on. But it's not that hard these days to figure out where he's talking about. So we can unpack these places as part of unpacking our symbols. Um, I'm going to tell you a, a, a website address that's going to pop up on the, I thought it was supposed to pop up already, so it'll pop up in a minute, you'll be able to get the website address. But this is a really useful tool. It's called scriptures.byu.edu, then slash map script, without a T on the end, it's not script, it's just map script, all right? Scriptures.byu.edu slash map script, map script, I'll put it up on the screen uh, in a minute. When you do that, you, you tap, type that in, then you'll see a list of all the books of scriptures, you can click on Isaiah, then you click on Isaiah 15, and it will automatically populate on a Google Earth map all the places mentioned in that uh, chapter. It's really handy. Now, sometimes we don't know exactly where a place is, and we make a guess. So I think this one is probably guessed wrong. I actually think it's probably down here, but you can see it's a little out of place. But just by looking at this, you get an interesting thing. This is, well, really right here is the land of Moab. And so just by looking at the red dots, you suddenly get a feeling, oh, by seeing all those place names, he just described all of Moab. One of the images he's creating by naming all those places is saying everything is destroyed. It would be a little equivalent to if you're here in this area saying uh, Springville and Provo and Oran and Linden and Pleasant Grove and Lehigh and American Fork were all destroyed. And you'd say, wait, it's named the whole valley. It's not quite the whole valley, but you get the idea. Uh, and, and, but you can get that visually just by going to this website, right? Now we're going to focus on that, that one line. Uh, so there, there it is, scriptures.byu.edu slash mapscript. I was supposed to put that up earlier. I, I got my animation order mixed up. Anyway, so remember that we were talking about Heshbon and Yahaz and so on. Well, all you have to do is search online Heshbon in Wikipedia. It tells you that it's, it's about five miles north of Madaba. Well, Madaba is a modern place that we can find on, on a map today. And then you look at Yahaz, and it tells you it's about five miles south of another place, and then you just go look, you know, type that into Google Maps, and look, you can see here, well, they're about 20 miles apart, those two places, but one, Heshbon uh, was about five miles north, and Yahaz about five miles south, so we've got about 30 miles in between those two places, all right? So the first time I or the first time I did this on PowerPoint, I did it for the Lake Mission, so I just plotted out for them. Oh, that's the distance between Leighton and Murray. Now what was interesting, what he said was that they would hear the crying of Heshbon in Yahaz. Right? Oh, uh, I forgot. This again, this takes a lot of work, so you may want to just use a commentary, but you can do it on your own. Okay, so um, uh, I that slide up, so I thought I'd better we're going to do it. So, um, you can do it on your own. So, the question is, what is he trying to say? I doubt that literally, 
30 miles away, they heard the howling that came about because of the destruction in Heshbon. So the question is, how does it make you feel? What is Isaiah trying to get you to feel here? And I would guess, as you think about it, that you think, well, he wants me to understand how terrible this was for them. It's hyperbole that their howl can be heard 30 years, uh, miles away. But the idea is that this was terrible. Right. So we ask ourselves, what was he trying to accomplish with this? And what he's trying to accomplish is to get the people of his day to realize. He's prophesying that this destruction is about to come about. And he's trying to get them to realize how terrible that destruction will be. He wants them to feel it. Right. So wherever you live, think of a place that's about 30 miles away. And then think, if I were hearing them howling in despair, how terrible whatever happened to them must have been. And Isaiah wants you to feel that, and the reason he wants you to feel that is because it should motivate you to repent. That's what he was trying to get the people in his day to do, and it's what he's trying to get us to do. To repent and keep our covenant so we can avoid that kind of despair, that kind of destruction. And in a way, that's, that's a question we should ask ourselves. This will be our last little background tip for the day. But in a way, this is what we should ask ourselves in general. What, with almost everything, what was Isaiah trying to get me to feel? He painted these pictures he, with his words. He used these symbols. Uh, he drew on the historical things we'll talk about in, in, uh, later this week. And, and he drew on covenant imagery that we'll talk about later this week and so on and so on. Um, what was he trying to get me to feel? And you will find that almost all the time, what Isaiah is trying to get you to feel is twofold. One, that you need to keep the covenant or you'll be humbled. And that the humbling is not pleasant. And two, that you can be redeemed by the Lord. And so he has contrasting feelings that he tries to get you to feel. He wants you to feel the urgency of the need to repent by helping you to feel the despair that you will feel if you don't. And he tries to get you to feel the joy that comes when you are redeemed by God. Redemption and joy are two of the most common words used in Isaiah. So is destruction. <coughs> and that's the contrasting images that Isaiah will try and paint again and again and again. Almost everything in his book can be reduced to that. Not all, but almost everything. That he wants you to understand if you keep the covenant, then you will have joy and rejoicing because you'll be redeemed. And if you don't keep the covenant, you will have despair because you'll be destroyed. But then he always cycles back around and says, but even when you've been destroyed, even when you've been humbled, God will always give you another chance. And you can still return to God <coughs> and feel that joy. That is Isaiah's major message and it's my message for you today as well. And my, my hope that as we work on this together, that we can draw that message out of Isaiah together this year in our